Christmas According to Kids. If you want to watch that video again, YouTube it. Uh, folks at Southland Christian Church put together that a couple of years ago, and um, it has uh, millions of views uh, on YouTube. So um, I encourage you to look, uh, look, look at the video if you enjoyed it. Let me just give you just a quick um, um, uh, bit of information. Miss Betty's memorial service will actually be at 11 a.m. on Friday, not at noon. Uh, just a slight correction. But I, I, as you watch that video, um, what do you believe about Christmas? So in a couple days, we will celebrate Christmas. In a couple days, we will gather with family, friends, uh, maybe gather by ourselves. Um, we'll prepare a meal, look forward to preparing a meal. Uh, maybe you'll go to the movies like my family tends to do at Christmas. Um, what, what do you believe about Christmas? Um, the video is called The Gospel Christmas According to Kids. What does Christmas According to You sound like? Um, what, what, what details of the Christmas story uh, are you familiar with? Um, what details of the Christmas story are you not familiar with? Um, are there aspects of the Christmas story that, that you might be surprised to, to realize they're not in the Bible? Uh, or, or do you have every single one of those details um, ready to go? Last week, I came across a study um, done by the Pew Research Center about Christmas and um, the interesting study, they polled a nationwide study, thousands of Americans, and um, the, the study made two significant discoveries. Um, people who, who would claim to be Christians were asked questions about the biblical account of Christians, and they gave certain answers, and as a result, the, the study concluded certain things. And two significant discoveries are pointed out in this study. Number one is that the shrinking majority of people in America who profess to be believers believe the biblical account of the birth of Christ as depicted in the Bible. So as time has gone on, less and less people believe that the Christmas story found in the Bible is not accurate. A second thing that was discovered is that 57% of Americans now believe... In all four of key important elements of the Christmas story, down from 65% in 2014. So several years ago, uh, 65% of people believed in four key elements of the story. When the survey was done again, it had gone down to 57% of Americans believing. What four elements? Um, Jesus being born of a virgin the angels announcing the birth of Jesus, wise men or magi visiting Jesus with gifts, and Jesus being placed in a manger. Dr. Al Moller, a respected evangelical leader, commented on the study on his website and said, Among the topics probed by this new survey, one of the most striking changes in recent years involves the share of Americans who say they believe the birth of Jesus occurred as depicted in the Bible. Today, 66% say they believe Jesus was born to a virgin, down from 73% in 2014. Likewise, 68% of U.S. adults now say they believe that the wise men were guided by a star and brought gifts for baby Jesus, down from 75%. And there are similar declines in the shares of Americans who believe that Jesus' birth was heralded by an angel of the Lord and that Jesus was laid in a manger as an infant. Biblical Christians will certainly be interested in this report. And in that number that was given, that 57% of Americans now believe in all four of the elements of the Christmas story that were asked about the research. By the way, all four of them clearly revealed in Scripture. Now, as any Christian would understand, those are four very familiar truth claims in terms of the Christmas story. So... I will ask the question again. What, what does the Christmas story, according to you, sound like? So this morning, um, I'd like for us to explore the Christmas story as told by the Gospel of Luke. So turn into your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. 
We won't look at every single detail of the Christmas story. If you're interested to find out where every single detail of the Christmas story in the Bible is found, look to the Gospel of Matthew, first couple of chapters, and the Gospel of Luke, the first couple of chapters. Both of those Gospels will give you all the details. But today we're going to focus on a section of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Would you join me as we pray? Father, impress to our hearts the meaning of the Son of Man come to earth. To live among his creation. To give his life that we would have life. Speak to us this morning, we pray, O God. In your son's name, amen. So, one of the first things we we, we need to note is that, this is going to sound really obvious, is that Christmas really happened. The Christmas story really happened. Like, it really did. It actually happened. This was an event, a a, a moment in history, a a, a, a very specific moment in time where where Christ was born. Christmas happened on a real day. Verse 1 tells us, in those days, specific days, days in history. Now, was that on December 25th, 2018 years ago? No. No. But it was a day marked by real historical figures. We're given names of people. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, governor of Syria. Earlier in chapter 1 of Luke, we're told Herod, the king of Judah. All real people attested to have lived and existed by historians to have really existed as described by the gospel writers. When you read these accounts of the birth of Christ, of the story of Christmas, we're not talking about people like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings or Dumbledore from the Harry Potter novels. Or or Mr. Rogers, someone who you're probably familiar with from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. These are real people. Real people that existed in a moment in time. And what's more, the Christmas story didn't happen once upon a time. The Christmas story isn't, isn't a myth, a fable, a, a story with, with, with a, a good lesson at the end. It happened in, the Bible would say, the fullness of time. The Apostle Paul would describe this in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In God's infinite mind, there was a point in time where he invaded time to introduce to us the story of Christmas. Now, the vast majority of New Testament scholars and historians place Jesus' birth in 4 B.C., now, if you know anything about calendars, antennas, and radars, and alarm systems should immediately be going off. Wait, 4 BC? Doesn't, doesn't BC stand for before Christ? So, how can Jesus be born before he was born? I, I, I don't get that. Well, long story short, in the 6th century, a Romanian monk by the name of Dionysius used some fuzzy math to try and figure out the date when Jesus was born. And he was trying to figure out what, where to put following Easter's. You know, they, they didn't have Google Calendar back then in the 6th century. So people would use math for all sorts of things. And, and he, he got it off by a couple of years. And um, not before his numbers, though, were used to modify the Gregorian calendar, which is what we use today. But, but most every respectable uh, person who calls himself a historian worth of salt would recognize that this person, this baby who was born, Jesus of Nazareth, was born around 4 B.C. His calculations, uh, Dionysius, may have been mistaken, but, but listen, make no mistake, 
Jesus was born in time, in a day, that there's concrete reality around the birth of Christ. A second reality to the Christmas story is that it happened in a real place. Look at verse chapter 4 of Luke, um, verse 4 in Luke chapter 2. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. The city of David. You know, there's a number of different Christmas stories out there that, that take place in a whole bunch of fictional locations. Um, got some slides up here for you. Let's, let's see if you guys can figure out what this Christmas story is and, and where this Christmas story takes place. Do you all know what that movie is? It's a Wonderful Life. The movie takes place in the fictional town of Bedford, Bedford Falls. Um, what about this second classic? <laughs> Christmas Story. This movie takes place in the fictional town of Homan, Indiana. Maybe you recognize this third movie. This is my personal favorite. That's right. That's the Grinch. So we travel from Homan, Indiana to Whoville. That's where this movie takes place. Or how about th- this next Christmas movie that takes place a little up north? <laughs> Y'all recognize this movie? Y'all know this movie? It's Will Ferrell and Elf. And this movie largely takes place in the North Pole. I right? hate to break it to you kids, but the North Pole is, might not be a real place. Talk to your parents. Well, Christmas didn't take place in Whoville or the North Pole. Christmas happened in a real city. A real city that's actually about 7,000 miles from New Orleans. You can go to the New Orleans airport, get on an airplane, fly for about 16 hours, and you can actually visit Bethlehem today. The weather this morning is in the mid-50s, so t- take a jacket with you if you decide to visit, but it's, it's there. Bethlehem was a real city back then and, and is a real city today. These places, this place was not made up. This place existed as it does today. Like I said, the city's name is Bethlehem. And this is the same Bethlehem, by the way, where some 900 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Samuel visited a father by the name of Jesse. You might recognize that name, Jesse the Bethlehemite. He was the father of David, the great king of Israel. Bethlehem was also the city that the prophet Micah, some 700 years before, so 200 years after uh, um, this event with Jesse, 200 years after that, 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Micah delivers this prophecy concerning this city that we're talking about. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Therefore he shall give them up until when he, 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 she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Let's keep exploring this story. Now, here's an element about Christmas that you might not argue with, or I really haven't heard anyone who argues with, but a child was born in Christmas. Newsflash. There was was a baby that was born that's part, an integral part of the Christmas story. But who was this baby? Well, the biblical account of Christmas reveals that this child was real, but more importantly... This child had a real identity. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 8. The story unfolds and the gospel writer says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
And this will be a sign for you. We'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. As you read those verses in Luke, maybe you've read this story every year since you've become a Christian. Um, maybe you've read this story to your kids. Maybe you've heard this story. Did you notice how Luke describes the baby? Do you notice that description? Babies are cute. They're cuddly. They're beautiful. They stink. They're loud. Um, Three of the most incredible moments of my life, um, February 2nd, August 24th, and April 14th, have to do with three babies, when, when my three children were, were, were born. And there's plenty of words I could use right now, and I used back then to describe my babies. But, but look, look at verse 11 again. Look at how the gospel writer identifies who this baby is. Look at the words used to describe this baby. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This baby that is born is described with two unique phrases. I love my children, but I have never described my kids as being my Savior or my Christ and definitely not my Lord. They think they are at times, but I've never used those words on them. But isn't it fascinating that this is the language that Luke uses to describe a baby? What this tells us is that before Jesus was born... Before his lungs took their first breath, before his skin felt the warmth of the sun for the first time, before he took his first step as a human being, in God's mind, he was a savior. The reality of Christmas introduces us to the idea that Jesus came as a savior. This is his identity. This is who this baby in the manger is. A a, A savior. Now that's interesting. His primary objective was not to be our friend, our source of inspiration, or even our moral example. That's not how he's introduced to us. I mean, he he is all those things and he becomes all those things to us, but, but he before he can be all those things, he is presented as our savior, which means... That, that you and I, the Bible is making a claim about humanity. The, the Bible is making a claim that you and I need to be saved. A Savior has come to do what? To save. To save who? Us. To save us from What? We turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and, and Matthew gives us one detail. Matthew says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Bible introduces us to the idea that sin is an offense against God. That, that sin is an offense against God, and sin is something we are all guilty of. We have offended God in some way, and, and something needs to be done about that offense. Someone needs to do something about that offense. Let me, let me show you how this work, works. Evan was sitting right there, um, but Evan's my friend. I work next to him. I love the dude. He's brilliant, he's humble, he's kind, and um, for no other reason than for me being a sinful man, if I were to come up to Evan and just deck him with a right hook, just for, I don't know, maybe I got angry and I just punched him straight in the face, um, that's an offense against Evan, right? I've offended Evan, I've transgressed that relationship of of friends that we have, and, and now I've damaged our relationship as friends. I've sinned against him. I've done something against him. That, that because my action has been attached to him, there is only one person in this room that, that can offer me forgiveness for what I've done to Evan. Evan. Keith can't forgive me on Evan's behalf. 
No one in this room can come and say, there, there, I forgive you for what you did to Evan. And then have Evan say, hey, dude, what are you doing? He punched me in the face. The logic of forgiveness is attached to, to who receives the offense. I've offended Evan. Therefore, for, to be forgiven from that, for that offense, Evan has to come and forgive me. Well, if sin is, is some, a transgression against God, if, if sin is something we've done against God, if we have offended Him, if we have violated His law, then, then only God can forgive us for sinning. We have sinned against God, and, and, and what we've done is actually worse than punching Him in the face. This is the idea that's being introduced in, in Luke chapter 2, that God sends His Son to save us for what we've done to Him. God sends His Son to save a humanity who has rejected and rebelled against God. In a sense, God has sent Christ to save us from, not us, from Him. That's a, that's a twist to the Christmas story you see on TV, isn't it? There's a wrath that God has, has, has within Himself as, as a result of us violating what He desires for us and, and living perfectly, holy lives, um, living lives uh, aligned to His commandments, aligned to, 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 to Him and His character. We've, we've broken those laws and therefore, as the holy and righteous God that He is, He, he, he demands now that those laws be answered too. This is what Christmas begins to be about. This baby is also called Christ. So he's called a savior, but the baby's also called Christ. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ. Christ is the English translation for the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. It's a title that God has given to someone who is very, 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 very special. As, as a matter of fact, this anointed one is so special, there's, there's only one. There's only one anointed one, capital A, capital O. There's people God has anointed with His Spirit, has given them special power and favor, but, but the Bible introduces that there is, there's one anointed one. There's one special Person that God has poured Himself into in a unique way, and this is the title that's ascribed to this baby. There's another word, by the way, in the Bible that means the same thing and is used in the same way. The word is Messiah. Words Christ and Messiah are essentially the same thing, and and, and that is particularly it's huge. It's important in the story of the Bible. This is no small thing. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, thousands of years before the birth of Christ, after the most catastrophic event in human history, God installs a hint that someone would come to undo what humanity did. You see this in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God speaking to Satan at this moment. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've marred God's image by sinning against God. And, and they're all three guilty. Adam is guilty. Eve is guilty. The serpent, Satan, is guilty. And so God is now judging their transgression. And staring Satan in the face, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says, he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Centuries later, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God, God makes a promise to Moses. One of the most important characters in the Old Testament. In, in, in the, the mind of the Hebrew people, Moses is, he's right up there. I mean, he's, he's significant. But God tells him something. Deuteronomy 18, 18, he says, I will raise up for them, for his people, a prophet like you. From among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. The Old Testament continues to give us more revelation of, 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 of who this person is going to be. Of his identity. Of his function. Of his work. Centuries later David the great king of Israel speaks about a future king. In Psalm 110 when, when David the king says, says my Lord will sit on, next to the Lord. 
Wait, there's two kings? There's a king that's going to come. Who will sit at the right hand of God and who will come and rule over all the nations. Several hundred years after David, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant who by his wounds would give people healing. Would give his people healing. All these promises and many more sprinkled throughout centuries of history in the Old Testament. Making reference to one extraordinary individual. One who would come to save his people from their sins. All that materializes on the night that we call Christmas. When Jesus, the Christ, is born. The baby born on Christmas Day was more than cute and cuddly. He was the long-awaited Messiah. He was a long-hoped-for Savior. He was the promised one. The next time you sing the Christmas song, Silent Night, don't stop at verse 1. This is, this is where we often get Christmas confused. Where, where we make Christmas about the baby. And in a sense it is. But, but the baby grew up to be a man. And the baby was born to die. So verse 1 of Silent Night says, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. And our thoughts are taken to this sweet, cuddly little baby. And at all Jesus was cuddly and awesome and, and cute. And, 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 and he was more than a baby. And actually that hymn, that song tells us that. I keep singing to verse 4. Verse 4 says, Silent night, holy night, wondrous star, lend thy light. With the angels let us sing, Alleluia to our King, Christ the Savior. He's not a baby anymore. He's born. Christ the Savior is born. You must attach the identity of the baby to celebrate the Christmas season properly. He is more than a baby. He is a savior. He is Christ. There was in fact a tender, mild baby in that major some 2,000 years ago, but that baby is our savior. So, so far we've looked at different elements of the Christmas story. Kind of summing up some of what we've talked about. It really happened, right? This isn't a, a, a once upon a time in a land far, far away. The Christmas story happened. This is a historical event that, that occurred on a real day. Not on some made-up day. Not in a dream. Um, it, it happened. In, in, a, in, in a real city. Not in Metropolis where Superman lives. It, it, a real city that you could go to today where a real baby was born. A real human being was born who had an identity. A real identity. There's a reality around Christmas. But why do, what does any of that matter? Why is any of that significant? Why, 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 why spend time on the Sunday before Christmas and, and, and speak about that? I mean, couldn't, couldn't one of us pastors come up here and, and just share, you know, a real hope-filled, inspirational, uh, um, you know, uh, happy, joyful uh, sermon. I mean, we, we, we could have. But this matters for this reason. That those realities around the event of Christmas point to a reality of Christmas. There's, there's real meaning in Christmas. If Christmas is a real event, was a real event with, with a real location, a, a, a real a person, a, a real time, real, there's a, re, a physical reality to Christmas. Attached to that physical reality is an exclusive real meaning. There's a purpose to Christmas. Christmas is not something subjective. Christmas is not something that we project meaning into. There is real meaning to Christmas. If the story of Christmas is real, then, then, then it has real meaning. Not, not made up meaning or, or, or meaning that changes to, depending on the person, but, but real meaning. This morning as I was having breakfast, I, I scrolled through um, several news websites, which 
kind of what I typically do at breakfast. I just pull up, ah, just whatever. Um, and I came across an article with this title. The title was, A Christmas I Will Never Forget. Subtitle, What I Learned After Racing Through the Airport with a Ham. So this was an op-ed piece, and um, I read it because, like, with, with a title like that, you've what in the world is going on? So at Christmas, I will never forget what I learned after racing through the airport with a ham. And um, the, the uh, reporter just writes this story about Christmas he experienced uh, four or five years ago where I don't know why he's traveling with a ham, but he seems to be traveling with a ham. And you, if you've ever flown around Christmas, you know what airports are like and everyone's just bumping into each other. And so he winds up helping this guy who is traveling to see his wife and, and he's traveling with his kids and, and, and luggage and, and he needs help. And so the reporter has a ham on his hand and one of the other guy's kids. And so it's just a good, you know, kind of applause, happy moral to the story type uh, stories. But, but something caught my eye at the end of this op-ed. And, and so I'll read you the last three paragraphs of, of what this reporter in this nationwide known and read um, periodical uh, distributed and read by millions of people. Uh, this was his conclusion of what to put forth as as the meaning of Christmas, of, of just what's important to celebrate and emphasize um, around this season. So he says, this Christmas, you and I are probably going to have our own experiences that seem so frustrating at the time. The turkey is going to burn and you're going to have to go to the barren grocery store and buy TV dinners for everyone. Uncle Joe is going to say something that at the time will seem so offensive, but two years later will make a great story. Something's gone wrong and there's nothing we can do about it. This Christmas, let's look for the blessing in the momentary burdens anyway. Let's just let it be messy and imperfect. None of that caught my eye. This next statement caught my eye. The first Christmas was awful in its own way with the smell of animal manure and no decent crib for the baby. If that Christmas could hide a surprise blessing that no one expected, then no matter what happens, our Christmas can too. And that's how the article ended. And so I'm turning on my phone, I'm going, wait a minute, where's the rest? The first Christmas was awful in its own way with the smell of animal manure and no decent crib for the baby. If that Christmas could hide a surprise blessing that no one expected, okay, where's the blessing? Talk to me about the blessing. What, what, what made that first Christmas so important? I don't know. He didn't tell me. In the process of telling me about Christmas, he didn't tell me about Christmas. In, 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 in the process of elevating something important about Christmas, he left out the most important part about Christmas. And so I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. What was that special blessing? What was that thing that made that first Christmas so important? And fortunately, we have the Bible. But, but if all we had was that article, we would not know. Friends, the real meaning to Christmas. Why hopefully you showed up this morning. Why hopefully this season has, has just an extra uh, 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 scent about it. Um, yeah, potpourri and all that stuff. But there's just something about the Christmas season that, that is particularly important and weighty and awesome and, and, and incredible. Has nothing to do with the lights. Has nothing to do with, with the food that you'll make. Has, has very little to do with, with how much you actually enjoy the season. It has more to do with what the season means. The meaning behind Christmas. And According to Luke chapter 2, verse 13, which is where we're going, we're about to find the meaning of Christmas. So let's keep reading. Chapter two, Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Luke says, And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Friends, in, in, in a few days you will in fact gather with your families, you'll gather with friends, you'll, you'll have a great meal, you'll enjoy presents, you'll, you'll relive those family traditions that, that, that you enjoy um, 
We make orange danishes at my house for Christmas. Every Christmas morning, that's what we've had for breakfast for a long time. I look forward to Christmas Day for those danishes. Uh, if I were to ask around the room, you, every one of you has something that's unique to, to w- w- what you've injected meaning to Christmas for. There's a practice, there's a, there's a tradition, there's something that you enjoy that you look forward to in the Christmas season. Or maybe you won't, maybe you don't. Maybe Christmas is terrible for you. Maybe you're reminded of loss and pain. Maybe you're alone. Maybe you don't have a family to enjoy Christmas with. Or worse, maybe you do have a family, but you don't want to enjoy Christmas with them. Listen, my greatest desire for you is that you would know something about the Christmas story. Something happened God achieved something for those with whom he is well pleased. The reality of Christmas is that Jesus has come to inaugurate God's peace among his people. The story of Christmas is a story of peace. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. This is foundational to to all our pursuits of peace. This is the peace that really matters and makes a difference. This is the peace that Paul talks about in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means that God has declared you just just in his sight by imputing to you, that is, giving to you or accounting to you the righteousness of Jesus. And he does that by faith alone. Not by works, not by tradition, not by baptism, not by church church membership, and certainly not by the Christmas season. that, That ethereal, nebulous concept. But by faith Faith alone, faith in the Savior that came at Christmas. Friends, when we believe in Jesus that He came, that He was born of a virgin, that He lived a perfect life and died a death in our place, when we place our faith in Him as the Savior and Lord of our lives, we, 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 the Bible describes that we are united with Him, to Him and His righteousness, and God counts us as His He welcomes us into his family. If you you like family gatherings at Christmas, this is the ultimate family gathering. You're an adopted son and daughter of God through Christ. And what's the result of that? Peace with God. You have peace with God. You didn't have peace with God at some point. The Bible describes all of us that at some point before coming to faith in Christ, we were hostile to God. We were enemies of God. We we stood underneath this thing called God's wrath. And now as a result of Christ, and now as a result of us placing our faith in Christ, God has achieved peace We have peace with this holy God. We have peace with this infinite God. God's anger at us because of our sin is put away. It's no more. It's gone. Our rebellion against him is overcome. God adopts us into his family. And from now on, it gets better. All of God's dealings with us are for our good. God will never be against us. He has become our father. He has become our friend. We have peace with God. We don't need to be afraid anymore. We don't don't need to think and wonder about life and meaning and and, 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 and what, what, what value do I have in me? You have infinite value. Because Christ was born and Christ died and Christ defeated death itself and the result of faith in Christ is peace this is at the center of the message of Christmas peace with God and that peace extends itself to peace with ourselves what's that about 
Because we have peace with God, as a result of being justified by faith, we can begin to grow in the enjoyment of peace with ourselves. Let me expand on that. More and more, I hear this in conversations I have frequently, more and more people struggle with feelings of discontentment, anxiety, guilt. In, in a time where humanity has never known more entertainment than what it knows now. Humanity has never experienced more, more uh, options and mediums to pursue entertainment than now. Yet, people are not happy. People are, not dis- people are discontent. There's this, this general malaise that people walk around. Why? Entertainment's like candy. It tastes good, but it doesn't satisfy. It goes away. And like candy, the more you consume it, the more damage it does. We, we were built for something more meaningful than the trivial, superficial things of life. This is why people walk around restless. People walk around with anxiety. This is why Netflix binges are a thing. Where people will sit in front of a a, a, a TV show and then they'll watch 12 hours of a a season and then they don't know what to do with themselves. It's like, what do I do now? All that leads to hopelessness. Eric, you can come up. I I prayed about if I should include this thought and... Holy Spirit, I'm going to trust you that you're guiding this idea. But a couple of years ago, a, a YouTube, what do they call these people? Uh, there's a name for them. Influencers. It's a, a, a social media influencer. That's a thing. That's like someone on social media who doesn't have a real job. But this is true. And who will post videos and pictures of themselves doing weird things. They gather millions of of views and fans and likes and and stuff. And there's this dude by the name of Paul Hogan, who's kind of one of the the bigger influencers. A couple of years ago, he got in trouble. He got in trouble because he visited Japan. And he visited a very dark place in Japan. A place called the Suicide Forest. There's a place in Japan where, uh, I'll let you fill in the, the details. And he made a video about that in the forest with, with I'll let you fill in the details. Why does such a place exist? Have you all seen pictures of Japan, of Tokyo? You want to talk about a place where there, 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 there is more light and there is more entertainment and there is more stuff to, to just consume. And, and it's like, it's, it's the entertainment mecca of the world. But in Japan, there is a place that the Japanese people know about. That apparently, that's the place you go to find peace with yourself. It's, it's not, but... That's where you go. Now, why does such a place like that exist? What what, what deep distress and inner turmoil do people walk around with that make a place like that not only exist, but, but become notorious? Hopelessness. And what, 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 what does anything I've said to you, how does anything that we've talked about this morning affect or address hopelessness. If you believe that God unfolded millennia of human history, making world empires rise and fall, preparing for the day in which he would make a virgin have a baby, then how can, how true and certain are God's promises for you? 
This God is now for you. This God now now walks with you. He lives in you. He empowers you. He gives you meaning. You have peace with Him and He desires to protect. Listen to this. He desires to protect your heart and mind from anything and everything that would work against this peace that is now yours in Christ Jesus. Where do I get that from? Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The picture here is that our hearts and our minds are under assault. Guilt, worries, threats, confusions, uncertainties, they threaten our peace. Paul says, God wants to guard you. That God that made the miraculous thing of a virgin giving birth to a baby. That God is on your side guarding you. Guarding your mind. Guarding your heart. Guarding you with his peace. And how does he do this? Well, he does it when we bring our anxieties to him. When we respond to him, which we're about to see how to respond to him in just a few minutes. But when we do this, when we come to him, we we, we remember we have peace with him. And we trust him as our loving and almighty heavenly father to help us. His peace comes to us and steadies us and protects us from the disabling effects of fear and anxiety and guilt. And then we're able to carry on and our God gets the glory For what we do. Because we trusted him. This is my hope for you this Christmas church. Take. Take your anxieties to the Lord. Tell him about them. Ask him to help you. Ask him to protect you. Ask him to restore peace in your heart. And and if, if you don't know Christ. Let me ask you to. To receive him. To respond to this revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Pray that the Father would would, would give peace between you and him. Place your faith in Christ. And so this Christmas, I want to remind you to, as the slogan says, keep Christ in Christmas. It's not a bad slogan. But it's actually used incorrectly. It's not really about making sure that the word Christ is in the bumper sticker. It's that Christ is inside us. It's about making sure that the Savior has made a home in our hearts. It's about making sure that that Christ has given you new life. That you have been birthed into the kingdom of God. And so, how do we respond? Well, we respond like the angels did in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. I've asked Eric to lead us in the singing of an incredible Christmas song. that's been around for hundreds of years. And I want you to pay close attention to verse 1. Close attention to... So, I'm asking everyone to stand with me. We'll be dismissed... Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconciled. Joyful all the nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Let's sing together.